Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and my favorite monster is Frankenstein's monster because he's super smart, and I hope someday to have half the brain he does, either literally or figuratively. <laughs> I'm Caitlin, and my favorite monster is the monster in the latest Shannon Hale book because it's not the kind of monster that eats goats. It's just really smelly and makes people feel sad and has a little monster stuck in its fur. It's really gross and it is Ooh. awesome. So, and when it gets wow. clean, it has bright blue fur with pink polka dots. And I don't think you can do better than that. Sounds probably not sounds like a whole arc. My name is Cameron and this is the least amount of thought I've ever had to put into one of these questions. My favorite monster is a vampire <laughs> to everyone's shock and amazement. <laughs> Does that count? Huh? Because it's like a human one. Does it I count mean, as a monster? I guess we didn't define what a monster is. Vampires are definitely monsters. Oh, Isaac has spoken. So. There it is. <laughs> okay, my turn. Hi, I'm Isaac, and my favorite monster is probably the Beast of Gévaudan. If you haven't heard Obviously. of that before, <laughs> it's uh, in the uh, mid-1700s in France, there was this beast terrorizing a, the kind of bucolic countryside. Oh, I heard about um, this. Yeah, and they sent out monster hunters to get it, and uh, eventually they think they got it, but it terrorized like 500 peasants, and it's just fascinating to me. I love monsters. I love monster hunter stories, things like that, but that's one that just continues to fascinate me. There are so that's many super spooky. theories about that. That's like where werewolves, maybe not where they come from, but people are like, it was a werewolf. No, it was a vampire. Yeah. No, it was a big wolf. I've heard so many interesting it's, things about that one. It's still a big mystery, and I think that that's why it's still something that's quite interesting today. Wow, I guess I know what my new research project is tonight. <laughs> Very scary. So a big welcome to Isaac Stewart. Isaac, we are thrilled to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Isaac Stewart is the debut author of the picture book Monsters Don't Wear Underpants and Brandon Sanderson's art director at Dragonsteel Entertainment, where he has created many of the maps and symbols related to Brandon's work. Tell us about your book, Isaac. So my book is a lift the flap board book called Monsters Don't Wear Underpants, a lift the flap book. It's just a, it's a silly book that uh, teaches kids about wearing underpants, I guess, but it's a monster who doesn't want to put on underpants. His name is Little Blue. He jumps out of the bathtub and he's off into the night terrorizing his neighborhood, asking which monsters wear underpants and which don't, trying to kind of figure out for himself um, what type of monster is he? Does he wear underpants? He's not quite sure. Uh, so I ran a Kickstarter for this back in October. I had gotten a little bit of experience helping run Brandon Sanderson's Way of Kings Leatherbound Kickstarter. So I'm like, okay, I think I can do this. I'll try this. And so it, it worked out. We funded in less than a day and it's been a lot of work, but it's, it's good. It's going to, I'm going to have a, a picture book out in the wild. That's kind of fun. Well, that is excellent. That's an interesting route to take. Sorry, I'm already derailing our conversation. It's an interesting route to take for a picture book because picture books are distributed differently than most books that you could get if you... It's not quite self-publishing, I guess. Well, it is self-publishing, isn't it? Yeah, the, this is totally self-publishing. Yeah. I did have a publisher for it, but we decided that um, after working with them for about a year, we decided that our goals were different. Mm -hmm. And so I unfortunately left the publisher 
um, with the idea that maybe I would do something with it in the future. Um, and Kickstarter is what I decided to do. I, I've had a lot of experience designing books and printing books. And so I thought I, I can do this. I can, I can figure this out. Mm-hmm. Which is why I think it's so cool because I think most people probably couldn't get away with it. But then yours funded in just a day and it's an amazing book. I've seen, uh, I think you showed us pages the last time I saw you in person. I don't know if it was yeah. a bound book yet or if it was just the mock-ups, but it was super cool. Like as soon as I saw it go up, I was like, yep, buying that one. <laughs> Thank it's you. Really super cool. And I'm excited to see it. Are you just distributing? See, I have all of these questions. We can cut them out if you want later, but I'm oh, it's all good. curious. No, this is good. How are you distributing it? I mean, is it just through Kickstarter and then online or? Right now it's just through Kickstarter and online. Um, there's a pre-order backer kit store that people can go if they, they miss the Kickstarter, they want to go buy the book. They just go to monsterunderpants.com. So it's online there. We'll be shipping it out when we get the book sometime early next year. I'm also going to try maybe getting it into Amazon. There's going to be a couple of local Barnes & Noble booksellers that have asked for it, and the BYU Bookstore has asked for it. So th- there will be a few local bookstores, and we're going to go from there. Distribution is completely new for me, so I'm not sure how we're going to get it widely distributed yet. Well, it sounds like you've already got a really like a, a head start over where most people would be, so... It sounds awesome. I in ten years I'll be uh, subbing my picture books to Isaac for his new picture book publishing company. <laughs> and, Amen. There you go. Yeah. I don't know how many more kids' books I have in me. It's a <laughs> lot of work. It's true. When you're the author illustrator, it's all on your on your head. Actually, that's one of the things we wanted to ask you about. So I'm already turning yeah. this around. When oh, you're working good. with art, especially in a picture book, how do you have the art carry narrative weight? So there are different ways to do this, right? If if you're talking about a picture book and the the pictures helping support the narrative, you've probably seen books where the art and the narrative follow really closely each other. And that's fine. That's one way to do it. I like to add things to the art so that the art is pulling its weight and the words are pulling their weight. And together they are Voltron. They Mm -hmm. uh, are greater than the sum of their parts, if that makes any sense. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, I think, counterproductive in a kid's book to say there was a boy in a rocket. And then you show a picture of a boy in a rocket. You know, Mm -hmm. I think you should add something more to that. That's helping tell the story. There's a dog riding on top of the rocket too in space. And so there's a question automatically. The kids are like, that's not in the words, but here it is in the picture. And you can do all sorts of different things with this where you can tell a story with the words and you can tell a story with the pictures. I do this in Monsters Don't Wear Underpants. It's kind of funny there. Yes, it's it's 24 pages long. It's like 200 words long. And there's like two or three subplots to this book. <laughs> How do you do that because in 200 I, words? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny because this book has taken me longer than it would to t- write like a hundred thousand word book. <laughs> but um, the reason I could do that is that I carry some of those subplots with the pictures and some of them don't matter. They're kind of like three layers below. You don't need to understand what's going on there to understand the book. But if you know what you're looking for, I, I hide little things that if somebody asks the right questions, they can go back through the pictures and say, oh. Something else is going on here. That's really cool. I think that as an author illustrator, that's a really fun thing to really get into. I personally, I've written a couple of picture books, but I've never been serious enough about them to even put them on submission, I don't think. But I have a friend who writes picture books and she always talks about how illustrators, a lot of times 
when you're doing in the picture book industry, I guess you don't actually have a lot of contact with your illustrator at all. You just give them the text and then they do what they want with it. And they actually, a lot of times do not care for any direction as far as the art goes. Like you can't put little things in italics and say, this is what's supposed to be on this page. So it really does turn into like a, like you hope that the illustrator adds a whole lot of extra things to the story that you didn't even know were going to be there. Either that or people get mad. I'm not sure. Cause I was never in there, but. Yeah, that, that's a, a completely different thing. If you are not illustrating it yourself, the, there is that kind of barrier between you and the artist that is then you're facilitated by an art director at the publisher or something like that. I can understand why there would maybe need to be some, that, that there would need to be direction between, because not all authors are art directors, right? Well, uh, authors so, are creepy sometimes and are like, I want it exactly <laughs> this way. And they don't know what's best. <laughs> ex- exactly. And, and we can get, as authors, we can get bogged down in the details of the story and we can say, well, that's not a scene from the book, but the publisher is thinking for the cover, for example, but the publisher is thinking about getting the book into the right people's hands. And so if they want to represent the book and the feel of the book in a way that is going to help the author get good word of mouth, because if you get that book into the wrong people's hands, they're not going to like it and they're going to give it bad reviews. And in most cases, you can trust your publisher and art director and marketing team to try to find the right market. And sometimes that means the details aren't going to look like what you expect them to. Mm-hmm. That's actually probably really good publishing advice in general. <laughs> yeah. Probably not yeah. going to look quite like what you expect. I just got a, a cover mock-up today for my newest book that's coming out. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I have to let it sit for a minute and be like, okay, right. this is okay. <laughs> that's always exciting and a little nerve wracking. Yeah. So with only 24 pages and 200 words, which is a crazy low number, I imagine you have to be really succinct with what details you do choose to include both in the pictures and in the text. How did you decide what was most important to include in the story? And do you have any tips for authors who are trying to determine what details are best for their book? Yeah. So the way we figured out, I say we, meaning my my agent, Ben Grange, helped a lot. And um, I also ran early drafts of the book by my kids, nieces, nephews, anybody who would listen. I would run the story by the people and I would watch their reactions. And I'd be, oh, they're bored at this point, or this joke fell flat, or maybe I should reword this thing. It's kind of like a songwriter who is going and doing open mic night and they, they play a song and then the next time they adjust it for their audience until they're, they're, they're slowly changing it to get the reactions that they want. It's a little bit of a performance art. At least that's how I treated the picture book was I wanted to see if this book is going to be read aloud a lot, what's going to work? What's going to be a book that parents aren't going to get tired of reading to their kids? Well, it's got to be short. It's got to be pithy. It's got to be funny. So I would say to authors who are trying to write a picture book, at least in the style of kind of the vein of what I've been doing is learn to write poetry or songs because you learn how to turn a phrase. You learn how to say what you mean really quickly. And it's very, very different from just sitting down, I think, and just writing a novel or a letter. You have 200 words, right? I spent as much time refining those 200 words as an author would refining a hundred thousand word novel. And so I guess just keep that in mind that it's, it's a lot like poetry. If you only have 200 words, you have to choose which words those are very carefully. Make sure there aren't yeah. any extra ones. 
Yep, exactly. It's it's like writing jokes. It's mm-hmm. honestly like it, this book was like writing Laffy Taffy jokes. <laughs> In fact, I, like I say it that more and then, than Laffy Taffy, Laffy Taffy jokes. <laughs> well, one of the one of the the pages that we cut because we it was a little bit longer and we needed to fit it into a board book length. And in fact, the the original publisher wanted us to go down to twenty pages. And the reason we didn't was because it didn't feel right pacing wise. Didn't feel like the arc was doing really well at that length. But we did cut two. We cut the Wolfman at the beginning. So there were two two monsters we cut. One that doesn't wear underpants and one that does. And the Wolfman does doesn't wear underpants. Well, at least not when the moon is full. <laughs> and the we cut it. It didn't it didn't quite work. It was funny, but it was very similar to the bat joke that I had earlier. And then the later we had the mummy. And no matter how many times I rewrote that joke, it it sounded like a laffy taffy joke. It was all about, you know, it, it was just dumb. <laughs> My favorite part about that one, though, was the little monsters peering inside this sarcophagus, right? Mm-hmm. And then you lift the flap, and there's this bony arm that's coming out trying to get him. And there's the, the punchline, but then the the mummy says, curse you. Uh, but kids don't get that, and I thought it was funny. So we took it out. Killing the darlings. Oh, yeah. in the sequel. We'll see it in the sequel. <laughs> Maybe. I, I, I don't think you can write a mummy joke that kids will get. It doesn't sound like a Laffy Taffy joke. <laughs> That's fair. Right? That's fair. It's fair. So you do a lot of collaboration because you're Brendan Sanderson's art director. What does that look like collaborating with an author and doing – you do mostly maps and then um, chapter heading stuff, right? The the art stuff that I do for Brandon is mostly maps, symbols. Mm-hmm. And then I, I art direct. I, I hire out a lot of other things. I figure out what art goes in the books along with Brandon with his direction. I do a lot of the merchandise type things, I, some of the t-shirts and stuff, but I'm kind of getting a, a little bit away from that, uh, trying to focus more on the stories. But it's a, it's a lot of um, it's a lot of collaborating with Brandon. It's fun. We get to sit down now and then and brainstorm things and uh, which was fun. We we had done that before he was published and it's it's fun that we get to continue to brainstorm and and uh, do that sort of thing. So how does that work? I mean, I don't have a super close relationship with any of the artists who do any work on any of my books. So how does it work for you guys? So, yeah, so that we, so that we know kind of what the normally, what the, you can expect at a publisher working with an artist is it's pretty much, you don't, right. You work through the publisher. They send you an email that says, here's what you get. (laughs) Yeah. Here's, here's a concept art for the cover. You might not even get that. You might just get the cover. That's what happened to me this Um, time, which is fine. I I like it. I'm good. Yeah. So (laughs) it, it, it just depends on the publisher, but most often you have no direct contact with the artist. I've done maps for publishers where I have gotten from the artist a, a drawing of the map and I do my, I do my version of that. I try to read the book or the supplementary material that comes through and I have to ask questions through the publisher. What did they mean by this? What is this symbol right here on this map? Those sorts of things. And I wish sometimes that I just had direct access because I've had times where fans have come up to me and said, why did you do this weird geographical thing on this map? And I said, well, that's what I was given and I had no access to the author. So I think there should be more and maybe that's blasphemy, Um, (laughs) but at least some kind of moderated discussion between the author and the artist 
Working with Brandon, though, it's a it's a back and forth. He knows the writing really well. He knows his stories incredibly well. And I, I know the art side of things. So he'll come to me and say, um, like with the Roshar map, he'll say, I want it to look kind of like this. And he'll have found an image online or something that he has drawn and then say, can you turn that into a map? And I say, sure. And other times it's just been like with Mistborn, he kind of knew where a lot of the places were. And he gave me a little sketch, but the further world has been something that I've sort of opened up as I've read the books. Um, I feel really like an explorer at that point, reading the book, finding details, writing down what's there. And then I show it to Brandon, make sure that it's matching his vision. We adjust it sometimes. Sometimes we adjust the text slightly Mm. um, if we have the time to do that, um, because we have found something that was maybe it was inconsistent. Uh, So we adjust the text or we find something through the art that we like better than that was actually in the the book. So we, we change that. Uh, So it's, it's really a lot more collaborative getting to work directly with Brandon as opposed with uh, sometimes working directly through the publisher for these things. Another author I've been able to do that with is Brian McClellan on the powder mage books, uh, mainly because Brian and I uh, knew each other before he was published and we had that existing relationship. So I would say if you want to have some control over the art in your books before you were published, go make friends with artists <laughs> and then try to involve them somehow with the publisher and then you can talk directly with them. <laughs> so don't call you is what you're saying. People shouldn't call you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually... Retired basically from that sounds really weird, right? I'm retired. <laughs> that didn't sound old enough. I'm retired. That was pretty Sorry. good. <laughs> uh, I have a pretty good old man voice. I'm, I'm growing into it. Practicing. The uh, <laughs> I'm retired from uh, doing maps for for other authors. I have a few out there that may come back to bite me that I need to get done, but. For the most part, I'm retired from that. The exception I would make is if the Jordan estate ever came to me and asked me to do a wheel of time map, I would do that yes. in a heartbeat. That um, awesome. But uh, I, I'm mainly doing them for Brandon and then trying to spend the extra time with my family or working on my own stuff. That makes sense. So authors who are working with an artist, somebody who's either self-publishing or someone who is already like mm-hmm. in the process of being published, how can they make it easy for their their map artist to do a good job based on on text? How to make how can an author make it easier for a map artist? Mm-hmm. And I would say just to, to have a kind of a clear idea of what your world looks like. Even if it's, you know, there's a kingdom in the north and you've just drawn a blob and you've named it, right? And you kind of know where the mountain ranges are and they're just blobs. But if you kind of have this map laid out for you already, you're going to have fewer continuity errors as you write it, write your book anyway. You might discover, oh, I need those two cities closer together instead of the artist discovering that you need those two cities closer together. And by that time, it might be too late and there's an inconsistency in the book. So I'd say at least having a sketch um, that's really helpful for an artist. And there's there's a lot of great great software out there, too, if you want to get into it a little bit more. There's things like uh, World Anvil for world building, uh, and the people over there are great. Um, they, they have a great website. Wondercraft does what I wish that I could have done in making a map creation software. A lot of these are really easy. You just stamp mountains in, right? You draw coastlines and then the software makes it look good for you. And incarnate campaign cartographer. These are all 
pieces of software that you could look into and if you wanted to and just kind of create your own maps that way. And then you could send that to the artist and just say, this is really close to what I want. And then the, the artist just makes it look pretty. That's great advice. We're actually out of time for this portion of the podcast, but does anybody have any final thoughts? Isaac, do you have any final thoughts? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now we'll move on to the portion of the podcast where we critique an audience submission. We like to keep these critiques non-prescriptive, but you can check out the text of the submission for yourself and see all of our notes on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. In this week's chapter, we see a clever elf selling fake magic paraphernalia at court while she works on a bigger plot for the kingdom. What are some things we liked about this chapter? I thought this had a fun opening line. I liked it too. Um, that the, the, the first three sentences kind of grabbed grabbed me. So should I say the line? I, Go I don't, for it, yeah. Yeah, so it says, Fenril, the Enchanted Blade. That is his name. The one who is ruining my life. That's so, such a great promise for books yeah, to come. I love it. Yeah, it is. I thought that was fun. And uh, it, yeah, a lot of questions, good questions were opened up in that those three sentences. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of there being high elves who are kind of snooty and more down to earth coastal elves. I thought that was very fun. Um, at one point, the author describes, you know, the boring high ballads that the high elves enjoy and then she talks about, or the narrator talks about herself, a coastal elf, and says, I was a coast elf, and we enjoyed ourselves. I thought that was fun. I bet you they surf. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you they With their too. hair rippling in the wind behind them. <laughs> I also was intrigued by the mention of the main character having had lots of experience with the undead, and that Fenril's hat makes him look like one. I thought that was kind of fun. Cameron, did you have anything you wanted to add? You've been very quiet this you whole recording my, session. Well, I'll just, I'll just third, where are we? I also like the opening line. I like the promise of the interpersonal conflict. That was definitely at least being set up to define the next bit of the book. I'm actually kind of wondering if it's like a romance enemies to lovers thing based on some of the things that happened in here, but it could just be complex. I was wondering that too. I mean, I'd still call a romance an interpersonal conflict. Oh, see, there's two of us. It must be true. <laughs> what are some things that might need a second look in this chapter? So I have a, have a couple of different things, but I'll just start with one. First off, I find that uh, a lot of people who read are actually pretty good at putting sentences together and paragraphs. And that's what we're seeing here. So I'm starting off with another good thing. This person can write, but I think getting down into the nitty gritty uh, is is what they might need to look at. So the second look that I would say is there's a lot of what we call info dumps. Right after we get that punchy first line, we get basically a page, page and a half of what feels like an encyclopedia entry about what their elves are like. And these are things that should be shown through the story and the interactions of characters rather than just told us right up front. And the reason being is that that stops the forward momentum of the story and can keep a reader from continuing to read. If I could throw in kind of an addendum to that, whenever I see a word like elf or dwarf or orc or something like that in a submission like this, my immediate first question is how how is your elves going to be different? And we have a lot of information thrown at us, but I didn't, there was nothing in there that was going to show me the high elves are snooty and the not high elves are not. That was kind of the, kind of what I, kind of what I got out of it. So I was hoping to see more of how, how are your elves different? Building on that just a little bit, we have those, those lines that promise us Fenril the Enchanted Blade is ruining my life. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about elves. It felt like it just needed to go into, okay, 
Who is Fenrir? Mm-hmm. Why are they ruining my life? Along with that opening line, so the way that the submission is structured, we have him saying, or the girl, the main character is a girl, saying, this guy is ruining my life. But then by the time we get to the present tense, not present tense, it's all past tense, the present in the narrative, we still don't know why she thinks he's ruining her life. So that promise isn't fulfilled just based on the narrative as it goes. And it should be by the time we get to the present tense with her, I would think. Not present, but the present of the submission with her. One last note on all the info on Elsweet at the beginning. Like Isaac said, that definitely has a place in the story later on. But I think this book would grab my attention a lot more if it started with a scene. We do get to a scene, but it's not until a lot farther on in the submission. Usually it's good to have your readers jump right into the action and so we can really get our attention grabbed. Uh, One of the things I was really missing from the scenes that do happen is grounding detail. I was never quite sure why we were where we were or what was around the main character or their place in the scene even. Like there's a point at which they're in this throne room and they're watching this guy they hate go and become the the, um, princess's bodyguard, but I'm not sure why they're there. I'm not sure why they hate the elf person who is becoming the bodyguard. And, And I'm not even sure what's in the room other than the king and the elf and the character. So I, I missed a lot of grounding detail throughout the whole submission. So this ties into maps, right? You wouldn't need a map of the scene, but an author can sit down and kind of map it out and know or figure out what details the reader might need to ground themselves in the scene so that they know where the blocking is and knowing which details to add to the description so that the reader can map the scene out in their head and see it. When you don't have those details, it's harder for the reader to see the scene. Thanks to this author for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work. And Isaac, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. It was great to have you. Great advice. Listeners, be sure to check out Monsters Don't Wear Underpants on monsterunderpants.com. Yes. There are links in the the episode notes. Our next guest will be Namina Forna, author of the upcoming epic fantasy YA novel, The Gilded Ones. If you'd like a critique from Namina, submit your work by January 14th. If you like what you've heard today, please check out our new Patreon page where you can get bonus content like hot seat critiques and early access and participate in a writing group with Lit Service crew members. It takes a whole team of creatives to make Lit Service and patrons help us keep going. Thank you to all of you who have already become patrons and are keeping us on the air. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. Thank you to our intern, Lindsay Owens. We'll See you in two weeks.